Today's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Warby Parker. Warby Parker brings you a new concept in eyewear, contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable and fashion forward. Visit warbyparker.com weeds to begin your free home try-on experience today. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. Mine should be fun, not pretentious. Start learning as you drink at clubw.com weeds, and you'll even get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com weeds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Trump, Trump, Trump. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as usual by my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. I am very tired. I am moderately tired. I am very awake as our graphics editor now. <laughs> this is, we are recording this the morning after Super Tuesday, which it's I like to think Wednesday. of as hungover Wednesday, even though I didn't actually drink, but it's I feel very hungover. It's a voting hangover. A democracy Democracy, hangover. yes. The yeah. worst of the hangovers. <laughs> <laughs> Hits you the hardest. The worst of the hangovers, except for all the others. Right, yes. Boom. Those are the worst. I just, it's hard for me to believe that in my younger days, like 2008 <laughs> cycle, I covered these primaries while drinking. And then, then got up and did content. The yeah, next I can't day. even conceive of what was I don't, what I did or how I did that. Yeah, and probably all my opinions were wrong because they were formed <laughs> while drunk. But now I have a, a sober perspective on the election, and it's that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Yeah. Whoa, if true, that, that would have been like a whoa, if true five months ago. I think that's Donald a, Trump is really, really seems like he's going to be the Republican nominee. Like this is not a well because the discussion has shifted from like will. Trump be the nominee to like what could possibly happen to stop Trump from being the nominee in 14 days. But but I think there's an important point here because I seen on Twitter on the cable this morning some I think really delusional Republican spin which is based on the expectations game view of the primaries, which we know is a real thing, right? I mean, when you come into New Hampshire, it's like John Kasich surprisingly gets second. And like, that's a big deal because expectations. So I've heard people saying, well, look, people were saying Trump was going to sweep, but he only won seven out of the 11 states. (laughs) Or, well, look, people said Trump was shooting up in the polls, but actually he underperformed his polls in most states. What did Marco Rubio say? He had like the most delusional. Rubio said that his numbers were going up everywhere, (laughs) uh, which is true, but they're going up from like way, way, way behind (laughs) to like winning one state, second in some states, third in some others, below the delegate threshold in Texas, which was the biggest state. The person who, who I think really a week ago had been totally, totally written off was Ted Cruz. He added three states to the one that he'd had before. One of the states that he won, Texas, is very, very big. So that's good and like good for him. But it looks like a classic, this guy's going to win some states and clearly lose sort of coalition that like already all the other southern states voted. So you can't say, well, he won Texas and Oklahoma and like now he's going to sweep these other states because he already lost them. Alaska, like nobody lives there. Um, He's going to do well in a couple other sort of Alaska-esque, very rural caucus states that Donald Trump doesn't have a real field organization. So he tends not to do well in in that kind of terrain, but you can't win the nomination that way. I just want to attach a couple numbers here that, that have helped me in thinking about this. And, and, and these Andrew Prokop, I think, has been, who's one of our politics writers, has been really clear-headed on what's going on here. 
I think it is easy uh, if you've been following the election now for a long time to kind of extrapolate forward. And because it feels like it has been going on forever, believe it will go on forever. And the conventions are very far away. And there can be this feeling that there is kind of endless time for things to turn around for the other Republicans, but there really, really, really isn't. We don't know exactly how many delegates Donald Trump uh, got last night because, you know, some of the votes are still coming in a little bit and, and, and we'll have to check some of that out. But the story so far is that if things continued on as they are, obviously Donald Trump has a huge, magnificent, classy lead in delegates. And he's way above where anybody else is. But by March 15th, 58% of delegates in the Republican primary will be given to one candidate or another, 58%. So at that point, if you're saying Donald Trump is going to keep winning and somehow the Republicans are going to mount some kind of counter-Trump effort, you would have to see Rubio or Cruz or someone winning an extraordinary number of delegates in, in the remaining races. But the reason that isn't going to happen is that after March 15th, a lot of the race moves out to the Northeast, where Trump has traditionally been much stronger. So two things are happening right now. One is three, actually. One is Trump is just in the lead. Like right now, Trump is winning. He is on a path to winning the nomination. He is winning in a dominant fashion. Chris Hayes on MSNBC had this good tweet last night where he said... If this was anybody but Trump, we would say this is over. And it may be that it just already is over. But so one is that Trump is already winning. He's winning convincingly. He's winning in a way that normally we would say means you're going to win the nomination. Number two is that there is not much time left. There, there, there really isn't. The calendar is short now. And in order for another candidate to make a comeback, they would have to not just like begin tying Trump, which no one is doing, not just beating him a little bit, which no one is doing. They would have to move to beating him a lot, which no one is clearly doing. And then third, pretty soon we're going to get into more and not less favorable territory for Trump. Um, what happened, one thing about Ted Cruz's showing last night is that, uh, uh, Matt, as you say, it was pretty good from one perspective. From the other perspective, Super Tuesday was supposed to be his big night. Ted Cruz is strong in the South. He is a extremely conservative candidate who's running to appeal to evangelical Christians. And he did not do that well. He won his home state. He won a couple of other states. But Donald Trump won in the South. And Donald Trump won in the not-South. And Donald Trump is proving he can win kind of everywhere in the country in a way none of the other Republicans are. So this is really looking good for Donald Trump. Like the, the underlying dynamics of the primary are getting friendlier and friendlier. And then the final thing I'll say, and we already have seen this dynamic begin to take hold, is that... The closer Donald Trump gets to winning, the harder it is for the Republican Party to actually unify against him. Because what's happening, even as we watch right now, is that the incentives for individual Republican politicians to defect to Donald Trump's side, while it still means something to Donald Trump and you can still get, you know, maybe a plum job in his administration, are really, really high right now. So Chris Christie obviously came out and endorsed Donald Trump and then looked like Donald Trump was keeping his family <laughs> locked up in the basement and he had to read a hostage, you know. But, but however much Chris Christie regrets his life, life decisions right now. He did endorse Trump. Maine Governor Paula Page endorsed Trump. Senator Jeff Sessions endorsed Trump. A couple members of the House endorsed Trump. And this is going to snowball because the more it looks like Donald Trump is going to build the next Republican establishment, the more people who want power in that establishment are going to defect to his side. So at a moment when the level of coordination the Republican Party would need to be Trump is higher than it's ever been. The incentives for individual Republican actors to defect from that coordination is also higher than it's ever been. And they're beginning to take advantage of those incentives. And I think we're going to see more do it in the coming weeks. 
Yeah, one of the bizarre things about the kind of stop Trump or never Trump theory is it suggests there's this idea that there's a silver bullet that people have been like really holding on to and just needed enough incentive to right. use it. And that now, holy crap, we're going to realize like we need to do this thing that we were supposed to do. And like we have this thing that we're going to do. And, and that thing is us unifying against Trump in a way that appeals to voters. One of the things I was thinking about this morning when I was looking over some of the numbers is in a weird way um, – the rise of Trump almost reminds me of Obama 2008 in terms of the amount that he is encouraging turnout, where you see this like massive upswing in Republican turnout this year that actually looks, I know on MSNBC, they're showing a few numbers this morning. There have been about 3 million more primary voters in the Republican season than there were in 2012. And Obama had about the same bump at this size. So you really see this candidate who's like bringing people out. People are excited to vote for him. They're promising amount of change that is different visions of change. But, you know, like you were citing Chris's tweet with Obama, you saw the party like really being like, yeah, this guy is getting people out. You saw like congressional press conferences being like, this is our guy. He's hoping change. You don't see anything like that from the Republican Party right now. You see this in a bizarre way. You see this candidate who is bringing in a lot of voters to their primaries, who's gotten these three million people who have sat out the past primaries to vote. And then you have the party in this bizarre position of not actually the RNC sent out kind of it's a, an odd press release that talked about how great this turnout was like look we have record turnout this is so great Hillary's terrible we've got to beat Hillary it literally didn't mention a single candidate yeah, it they must be thrilled yeah so, the, so they're <laughs> thrilled like they have all these Republican voters and they would like to take down Hillary but it really puts the establishment in this bizarre position of like not being excited about the surge of voters in a way that was very different from Obama's surge in 2008. And I do think this turnout point is is very important and I think often missed by people. But very few people vote in primary elections, right? I mean, in presidential elections, presidential general elections in the United States, a little bit more than half of people actually go vote, right? So that's not that many people. And then you do anything else, midterms, primaries on weird days, like almost nobody votes. We have an amazing video on this, by the way. Great Lego people. Being able to make people want to go vote for you is a really powerful quality in a primary. And it means that some of this talk about like, well, if you look at Virginia and like if Kasich hadn't been in the race and all of those people had voted for Marco Rubio instead, Rubio would have won. And and that's true, but it assumes a fixed universe of voter turnout, which in primaries, there's really, really, really no reason to to assume. Like you see turnout, but for Republican primaries versus Democratic primaries is like night and day in this cycle. And that's not because there are twice as many Republicans in America as, as there are Democrats. It's in part precisely because there are more Republican candidates, right? If there's five guys in the field, it's way more likely that there's going to be one person who you care about a lot, whereas the two-person race tends to be a little bit demoralizing. Trump, because he's so weird, is bringing people in who weren't normally there, whereas very conventional people get the same sort of co- conventional vote. Voters, it's a great strength that Trump has and that it's on the one hand sort of Republican leaders would like to make the race more boring and cut some of these figures out of the field. But I think it's pretty clear and, and it's been clear for years now that like Ted Cruz has a loyal following that they respond to his text messages and to his weird government shutdown ideas. They put pressure on backbench House members to do what he wants. And and it's just not at all obvious that if Cruz were to quit the race, that people who are jazzed up about Ted Cruz are going to go say, 
oh, yeah, now I'm going to go vote for, for somebody else, they might well just not vote. Because not voting is what – not because they'll be so demoralized that they don't vote, but because not voting in the primary is what the overwhelming majority of Americans do. <laughs> to vote at all is really weird and eccentric. So to get someone out but then turn their voters out, it's like that's hard. It gets harder the like more these things go on, right? And it's like if you voted for Ted Cruz in Iowa, that was like, OK, a preference. If you voted for Ted Cruz after everyone had already told you this was a two-man race against Marco Rubio, you're like a Ted Cruz diehard. The flip of this, and I think it's a very interesting thing about the dynamic that, that Trump is creating on the Republican side and if he's a, the nominee, will create in the general election. So you, you mentioned, Sarah, that we're seeing you know really tremendous turnout on the Republican side. But we also noted a couple of minutes ago that Donald Trump is actually underperforming his poll numbers, right? It isn't a situation where the turnout is coming out and Donald Trump is winning by 60, 70 percent. So what is happening is Donald Trump is bringing people out to vote for him and Donald Trump is bringing people out to vote against him. A lot of late-breaking Republican primary voters appear to be coming out just trying to stop Trump on some level. There are a lot of Republicans who do not want this sort of like orange bundle of anxious pathology <laughs> to represent their party. And the place where that's going to get very, 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 very salient is if Donald Trump becomes becomes Republican nominee. I think a completely reasonable problem you might project for Hillary Clinton is that there will not be strong Democratic turnout, that they will not be, the Democrats will not be excited by her. The answer people give is that, well, there's negative partisanship, that, that they're going to turn out to vote against the Republican. They're going to be very scared of a, of a Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush. That, you know, is a little, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, it'll certainly be true to some degree, but but maybe not to the degree Hillary Clinton needs. I had this conversation with David Axelrod, who is Obama's chief strategist in, in 08 and, and 12, and then, and then for some of his period in the White House. And he was saying that for Democrats, Trump completely solves the turnout problem. That if you look at polling right now, Democrats don't like Marco Rubio. They hate Donald Trump. Like they hate him and they fear him and they loathe him. The particular communities that, that Democrats are most worried would not show up are the communities Trump is the weakest among, people of color, et cetera. And so one thing I think this is very interesting about, about Trump is you're trying to imagine with him is his positive turnout quality larger or, or smaller than his negative turnout quality? Are, are the people Donald Trump turns out to vote for him a bigger group than the people he turns out to vote against him? Right now, he's already having a counter-Trump effect, as far as we can tell, on the Republican primary. The one he would have on Democrats in a general election would be tremendous. And, and as such, I think that you might not be seeing a lot of turnout right now in the Democratic primary. But if Trump wins the nomination, that problem will be solved for Democrats. Yeah, and I can't think of another candidate in recent history who has had that kind of like negative on either side. Maybe Obama like a little bit in 2008. I, no, but I don't there, think in 08, maybe 12. But may, Clint, Clinton might for Republicans. I just don't know if it's that if it's that strong. I'm like trying to think historically like who has had – because I totally agree with you that the negative turnout will be massive. Like, you know, this is obviously anecdotal, but I have friends in D.C. who say like – you know, I never really thought I'd get involved in politics, but like if Trump is the nominee, like I'm all in on Hillary. Who, who are your friends? Who are the people who are friends with you in Washington, D.C., who never believed they would be 
so I've involved got, to vote in I've politics. Some, I've, got some, I've got some friends who are. <laughs> no, they'd vote, but like people who oh, want okay. to like um, who want to like canvas got or like it, make yeah, calls yeah. in Ohio. So yeah, they're yes, my friends are voters. Don't don't. Um, Sarah Cliff's real America. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you could see like it's not not just voting, but people getting like actually involved in a way that they never really would have expected for a candidate like Hillary Clinton. And it's hard for me to think of. I don't know if you guys have anyone who like anyone who's had that negative counter presence enough to like get you to organize for a candidate that like you think is kind of meh and like going into the cycle you were very like meh on i feel there was a little bit of that with george w bush and john Kerry in 04 but not a ton this is the kind of thing where it, it is difficult to get outside of one's own mm-hmm. bubble right i mean there was a tremendous rage against george w bush among i would say highly educated, super involved left of center people in the United States. People felt really aggrieved about the fact that Bush seemed so stupid. I mean, I think that was like a, a, a real sort of motivating kind of like anger point. Well, and in, in 04, the Iraq war was also a big motivating It, it, it was, factor. but sort of was, sort of wasn't. I mean, there was a lot of anger about the war, but there wasn't a lot of concrete, if John Kerry wins, the war will stop, you you know, kind of thing. Anyway, I'm going to say, I I think that the emotional center of anti-Bush sentiment was among the kind of people who tend to be pretty involved in politics. The, The reason Democrats are bullish on Trump turnout, right, is that what they worry about is kind of marginally attached voters, right? That particularly um, Latino voters. Um, and, and to an extent, Democrats worry about, they don't worry because African-American turnout is low. They worry because the African-American turnout for Obama was so unusually high. And it seems, you know, prima facie, you would think, well, if we don't have a black candidate anymore, it's going to drop back to its historic level, right? So if the Republicans nominate someone who has built significant bridges with white nationalist movements, that motivates the people who Democrats worry about motivating in a way that, that Jeb Bush and, and Marco Rubio, I think, really don't. And, and so that's, you know, the, the sort of the thing that Democrats find exciting about the, the prospect of, of running against Trump. At the same time, you do hear this sort of worry that, that Trump may um, – further eat away at Democrats. I don't even know what the word you put for it is. I I heard someone describe it to me as Democrats' traditional white working class base, but it's been like since before I was born (laughs) that that was Democrats' base. So I I don't know what tradition it is exactly. But I think they're speaking to the point that Hillary Clinton has historically been sort of a, a identified with globalization. Right. And Donald Trump has very much positioned himself against that kind of cause. And so I think there's a view that if you look at states like Michigan, Ohio, Midwestern, traditional manufacturing type states, that Trump, some reconfigured Trump message, you know, may be very, very strong there. Those are states where Latino turnout doesn't help you at all uh, because there are not uh, Latino people particularly residing in them. And where it seems unlikely, no matter how much people hate Trump, it's difficult to imagine African-American turnout getting higher than it was to elect the first black president, right? So that sort of adds up to a a problematic Michigan situation, I think, for a Democrat running against Donald Trump. And kind of picking up on your point, we've never really like tested this theory before of like negative driven turnout to super high levels. So it's kind of it, it like makes sense intuitively. But I don't know if you see some of these people who you think are going to be enraged by Trump just like throwing up their hands at the political system and saying like, I'm out, I'm not voting. You know, I think Trump is terrible. I don't think Hillary is that much 
better. I think he inspires a decent amount of rage, but we've never really tested whether that's something that can drive people so to I, turn out in a significant I don't quite way. agree with that. I think that there. I think that a number of recent elections have been testing this hypothesis. I mean, what we're talking about is how far can it go, right? What we're yeah, talking about sure. is what is the ceiling of negative of negative turnout? Because mm-hmm. we are running experiment after experiment in this country now. Of like, how many people can you get out through hatred? So I think the the 2012 election had higher turnout from some of Obama's core constituencies than, than people thought they were going to see. And I think the explanation a lot of people have for that, and, and when I talked to sort of political consultants after, they didn't say, like, what we did was we, like, recaptured the Obama 08 super inspiring speeches spirit. Like, they did almost none of that. They made Mitt Romney terrifying to people everywhere. And, and they really made folks afraid that he would come in. And if you liked what Barack Obama had done, Mitt Romney would destroy all of it. He would take away Obamacare, He, you know, the 47 percent stuff. And I think a lot of elections are, are, are about negative turnout in, in a different way. I had this really interesting conversation with a, a, a Democratic political consultant who's been around for a long time, you know, has been doing elections for 40 years. And he was saying to me that when he started out doing elections and, and he was creating ads, that the work he had to do had a lot to do with convincing swing voters, that the kinds of ads he had to create were going to somebody who didn't hate Republicans and trying to convince them to vote for a Democrat, right? It may be going to somebody, in fact, who is skeptical about Democrats and trying to convince them to vote for the Democrat. And now he said, like, the work he does is all about going to people who already hate Republicans and convincing them that Republicans are so terrible that they really need to come out and, and, and vote for the Democrat. And I thought that was really interesting just in, a, in terms of strategically how it's changed. And I think, by the way, you see it in the strategies of candidates even right now. It's very fascinating looking at Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 as compared to sort of the legacy of Bill Clinton in 1992 and 1996, where it's like Bill Clinton's campaigns were all about trying to regain some of this white working class, particularly in, in, in the South. And he ran, he ran these campaigns trying to make Demo- the Democratic Party less a party of interest groups. He ran these campaigns where he purposefully offended, certainly in some cases, people of color in order to say that, like, there are places the Democratic Party won't go. He, he sort of, you know, he moderated the Democratic Party. And later on, this became famously triangulation, though it wasn't called that at the time. And Clinton is running on virtually the opposite strategy. I mean, if, Clint, if the problem in the Democratic Party when Bill Clinton ran was this idea that it was a collection of interest groups, each one which was demanding too much, and all of which had to be sort of brought back into line in order for there to be a coherent party that wouldn't scare sort of middle class white people. Like Clinton is now, you know, you listen to her election night speeches, and it's like, here's something for that group, here's something for that group, here's something for that group, here's something for that group. And I think similarly on, on, on the Republican side, you know, if you look back to George W. Bush in 2000, they very purposefully nominated someone who had a record as a bipartisan governor, right? In, in, in Texas, Bush had worked really well with Democrats. He ran as a compassionate conservative. He talked about how Republicans should imbalance the budget on the backs of the poor. Part of what powered the Ralph Nader candidacy was his idea there wasn't enough difference between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Then in 08, they nominate George W. Bush's more moderate, more bipartisan challenger, John McCain. In 2012, they nominate Mitt Romney, who obviously swings far to the right in the primary, but but certainly had one, one of the arguments for selectability was he'd been this moderate governor of Massachusetts, that he'd be able to sort of know how to run and win with, with blue voters. And then now you see the Republican Party just 
deciding between three different flavors in Rubio, Cruz, and Trump of really trying to activate their own base of, of people who either come out of the Tea Party or come out of something that's even more extreme and idiosyncratic than the Tea Party with the idea being that, you know, if they can just turn out enough Republicans, bring back that, that, that white working class, they can, they can win an election. It's a genuine change in strategy. We should pivot to that, that next because uh, this sort of question of how does Trump play in to polarization because I, I think I, I have a different view on that. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. If you're anything like me, then you know what you like and you know how you like it, except maybe when you're in the wine aisle. Tannins and terroirs don't mean anything to a person unless you happen to be a, like a fancy pants professional sommelier. But with Club W, the, the guessing game is over. Club W is the world's only personalized wine club. Your wines are sent directly to your door. Not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you're really going to love. And that's because Club W has this really easy six-question quiz, and it helps figure out your palate so then every bottle they send you is perfectly tailored to your tastes. They're leading what they call a grape-to-glass wine revolution. They work directly with vineyards, they cut out middlemen, and it saves you a bunch of money. Club W even offers a no-risk guarantee that you're going to love what they send you or else you get your money back. So right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. Mine should be fun, not pretentious. Start learning as you drink at clubw.com slash weeds, and you'll even get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com slash weeds. I tweeted the other day that I thought Donald Trump represented a step away from the ratchet toward polarization. And a lot of people were outraged because they see— It's a very polarizing comment you made. <laughs> well, because I think people on a gut level understand polarization to mean something like nasty people doing stuff mm-hmm. I don't like. But if you look at the sort of technical measurements of polarization, right, the main reason that American politics became so depolarized in the 1950s is that hardcore, super violent white supremacists had a lot of power in American politics. They dominated the political systems of like nine or ten states, and they had big influence in three or four more states. And they collaborated with terrorist organizations to murder people to prevent African Americans from voting. And that was the cornerstone of the era of bipartisan consensus in the United States because there was such a fundamental grouping around this idea of white supremacy and not letting black people vote or have rights that the people within that broad tent had a lot of different opinions about like the defense budget or should we have a dam in the Tennessee Valley (laughs) and these other kind of things. So you had an enormous diversity of opinion in, in the Southern Democratic Party. And then you also had some Northern Republicans who you know, felt that it was important to build coalitions with the more conservative white Democrats from the South. And you had others who wanted to sort of organize a party campaign against the Democrats, and they had this white supremacist element. So politics was very multidimensional and very sort of confusing. And and what's been happening since the unraveling of of that uh, politics in the South has been that we've been flattening the issue space more and more and more. So new things come on the table, right, like abortion rights. And Intuitively, it seems like politicians' opinions about tax rates and politicians' opinions about abortion rights could be, like, totally scattershot. But in practice, that's not the case, right? That the the pro-choice Republicans, uh, Susan Collins and Olympia Snow, were also the Republicans who cut down the size of the Bush tax cuts, were also the Republicans who were willing to join with Obama to create a stimulus bill. And that's been polarization. And, And Trump, to me, has appeared on the scene clearly not caring what the sort of 
leadership cadre of the Republican Party thinks or wants and has just been picking issue stances up here and there, right? And so he, I don't know if he just happened upon this or if he he knew it, but I have been reading polls that show that Republicans, rank-and-file Republicans, are more hostile to free trade agreements than rank-and-file Democrats are. And this is not reflected at all in the positions that the politicians take because Republicans are listening to business leaders and Democrats are listening to labor unions. But Trump, I, we know Trump loves polls, so he just listened to the polls and was like, fuck it. I'll I'll take the view that most Republicans agree with. And it's like that's working great for him. But it's creating, I think, the possibility of a, of a politics that will be less polarized in a way that how you look at Trump versus a conventional Republican as a Democrat depends a lot on what kind of Democrat you are, right? That if you are a uh, a Latino person who has family members who are immigrants or family members who are unauthorized, you're going to see Trump as a frightening step in like a more malign direction. But if you're like a, a Democrat, a sort of, I don't know, lunch bucket, whatever, you know, care primarily about sort of economic issues, someone who uh, really likes Sherrod Brown or, or something like that, you're going to say, okay, Trump has actually moved to a much more moderate stance. He just gave a, a sort of press conference that was all about how we need to invest more money in rebuilding our infrastructure, how we need to get tough on Japanese currency manipulation, things like that. And you'll say, oh, he's more moderate. And we can ask, well, is it true objectively? Is is Trump more moderate or more conservative than Mitt Romney? And it's like it's both. It's neither. It's He's moving politics off of this sort of very flattened issue space into one in which, you know, different opinions can can pull apart a little bit more from one another. And, and that's why you see he has Chris Christie is one of the more moderate sort of elected officials among Republicans by conventional scores. And Jeff Sessions is one of the most right wing. But those are his two most prominent endorsers because he's doing a little bit to kind of stir things up. I think it's it's a trend that not many of us anticipated, but at the same time, the polarization can't just go on forever. Right. One of the bizarre things like I've watched Trump talk about is his views on Planned Parenthood, which is another good example of like how he's like not really They've done great things for millions <laughs> exactly. of women. So I think was that at the de- that was at the last debate or and I don't he know. Sa- he said point. it again at the press conference last yeah. night. All the time. It wasn't a gaffe. It's now part of his right. standard so, line. And that's so bizarre. You watch this party, you know, attack and try and defund and call it Planned Parenthood as, you know, this terrible organization. And then you have Trump show up and say, you know, I think they've done great things. I oppose abortion and I don't like that part of it. But it kind of, I think, like you're saying, speaks to the bizarre place he's holding. But I think that speaks to one of the reasons why Trump is so difficult for the Republican Party to handle. And it kind of comes back to a theme we've talked about a lot on the podcast. It's very hard for a political organization that's kind of laid out, we have stances X, Y, and Z to handle someone who shows up and says, well, actually, Planned Parenthood is kind of great. And here are some other things that I'm just going to toss into the mix that kind of go with where the polls on um, voters are. There was a great piece on website Vox.com that we're all a big where, fan where of. Where can you find that? Oh, um, it's on the internet. Vox. V-O-X? Dot, yes. That's uh, not v- Vox. V-O-X. Commonly com. confused. Yeah, sure. Yes. Amanda Taub, one of our writers, partnered with the Morning Consult to do some really interesting polling of her own and um, basically found that the thing that defines Trump voters is ranking really high on authoritarianism, that they you can give this four panel set of questions that um, somewhat interestingly, it has to do with what you think about parenting and how you think children should act. That is a good proxy because you can't go out and ask people like, what do you think about dictators, but you can ask them, you know, what do you think about different sort of parenting styles? And it'll be kind of a good proxy for how people 
think about society. And one of the things she found, which is confirming a few other early studies, is that Trump supporters really rank very high on this authoritarian scale. They like the idea of order. They like the idea of kind of people falling in line and that these kind of impulses are strengthened by um, change, by social change, by immigration, by seeing things change in the country, that that almost activates these sort of impulses that people have. And it seems like Trump has really tapped into that in a way that the Republican Party has not been willing or excited to and found that there's this thing happening that he is able to see. And it speaks to Trump not just being a 2016 challenge for the Republican Party. Like it, It's very possibly a 2018 and 2020 challenge that they're going to face for a long time. It speaks to Trump as a symptom of something that's changing in the country rather than the catalyst of um, something changing. I have so many thoughts right now. <laughs> Feelings, thoughts. I, I, I almost... Uh, I have to say, as someone who kind of believes in a stricter parenting style, I was a little (laughs) offended to see that, like, if you think it's more important that your kid learn to follow the rules than learn to be independent, that that's like the same as you support dictators. I don't know. Sorry. Well, you got to argue with the evidence there. We should should come back to the authoritarianism thing. Both of these arguments actually come together in an interesting way. But, But let me start by pushing a little bit against the sort of depolarization thesis on Trump. I believed that about him as well, sort of early on in the race. I wrote this piece about how Donald Trump is the perfect moderate, uh, and it's based on on this political science research that, that David Brookman and, and and I think some co-authors who I'm, I'm I'm sorry I'm not remembering their name did showing that the sort of concept of the moderate is often very confused because what will happen is that we will think of moderates when when somebody counts as a moderate in a poll as being in the middle. But what they really are is they will have a lot of extreme opinions that are very unsorted. They won't know politics that well so because they're not attached to a party very closely. And so like where there's a Democratic Party, the Republican Party pushes you know, semi-achievable opinions at its people. Like, people are not that into parties, just sort of, like, go with their gut. And so, like, you'll have moderates who are like, I think marijuana should be completely legal everywhere, and I think we should deport all unauthorized immigrants. And when you put those two things together, it's like you've got one left-wing position, you've got one right-wing position, so this person is a moderate. But actually, they're much more extreme than most voters, and I think Donald Trump has a lot of that in him. He is a dude who was into single-payer at some point and also is into deporting all unauthorized immigrants and also is into banning all Muslim travel and also is into ripping up all free trade agreements. And these things just kind of go back and forth in in different versions of extremism. So there is something in which he is – truly like what moderation in this country often it really looks like when you dig deep into what we're finding in surface. That said, Trump, I think, looked like he would end up being much more heterodox than he has actually been. So on the one hand, a position that is coded as right in American politics is aggressive crackdowns on unauthorized immigration. Something you've written about a number of times here, Matt, the Republican Party tried to move to the center on this. They tried very, very, very hard. And one thing Trump has done is take the most salient and significant effort the Republican Party was making to depolarize at least part of its platform and repolarize it. Now, all the Republican candidates have moved to the right on immigration again, and Trump has taken what looked after the 2012 election like a an issue space in which you could find some consensus and totally repolarized it. 
On the other hand, as you say, he he wants to rip up free trade agreements. So there are places where he you know is moving to to what we might call the left, but it's actually I think just not that many, and it's not clear to that they're to me that they are bigger than the ones on which he's moving right. So uh, another example of this is that Trump talked a big game about it being terrible that rich people keep getting all these tax cuts and rich people don't pay more taxes. And even in his Tuesday night speech, he he made a big riff on how corporate tax inversions are a really bad thing. And we should actually do tax inversions on a future edition of The Weeds because I think it'll become important, um, particularly if he's elected. But then his tax plan actually came out. And he actually hilariously managed to trick a bunch of media organizations into like writing that it was like a, a big tax increase on rich people. But what it actually was was the biggest tax cut on rich people in the entire Republican field. That it would cost. Um, I'm, I'm doing these numbers from memory, but the tax it's policy 11 center. Trillion. Yeah, tax policy center found Marco Rubio's plan is in the range of 6.8 trillion tax cut. Ted Cruz's plan is in the range of 9 trillion. And Donald Trump is 11.7, 11.8. So he ended up coming up with not just like an orthodox Republican tax plan, but the most orthodox Republican tax plan. And I think there are actually a bunch of places. We bring up the, the Planned Parenthood stuff here, right? So Donald Trump keeps coming out and saying, hey, look, Planned Parenthood does a lot of good things for women. But what is Donald Trump's actual position? It is that we should defund Planned Parenthood immediately. Yeah, but immediately. that puts him on the left wing of the Republican Party, right? The current consensus conservative view on Planned Parenthood is that it is a criminal organization that is murdering people and it should be investigated. Donald Trump's position is that it is a good organization that helps millions of women and that he is proud to have supported as a private an individual with his money. I mean, but it should be defunded. Like I, yes, I, I yes, want to push I, this because I, I, that is the salient legislative thing that is polarizing well, people. So to just finish the thought, like one thing I think you're seeing here is that polarization can be driven by a lot of things. And like one thing we know is it is driven by the issue positions that polarizing politicians take. When Barack Obama takes a position, when Barack Obama decides the individual mandate is going to become part of Obamacare, the individual mandate goes from a not very polarizing position, something Chuck Grassley supported, to something that is completely polarizing, like right down Until the Donald Trump comes around I, and says it's an okay idea. But so that's the thing that like one other thing that I think will happen is Donald Trump is an exceptionally polarizing figure in American politics. And I think it is possible he will somewhat reorient the issues on which people are polarized. But I think it is unlikely looking at his numbers, looking at his tendencies, looking at his personality, and also looking at where he really is and where he really isn't willing to deviate, that he will end up bringing a, a market deterioration in, in, in polarization. Taxes is, is a really good issue to talk about because like on the paper, his tax plan is the furthest right of any of these people. On the other hand, if you want to see what does Trump's success like bode for the future, right? Donald Trump never talks about this tax plan. Donald Trump has a whole spiel about making America great again, and it just does not include the idea that Barack Obama is crushing the country with his high tax policies. It's not like I think Trump has great ideas on taxes or that Democrats won't and shouldn't hit him for proposing what's in fact a very, very far right tax plan. But if I'm a Republican politician and I'm saying, I don't know what the hell is going to happen this year, but you know, I got to think about like my future. The story this is telling me is that talking constantly about enormous tax cut plans is not as important to winning Republican primaries as I used to think that it was. And that if it would help me in the general election to be a little more moderate on that issue, that that's like a smart space to sort of tack to the center on. I think Trump's big theme, right, like what he's running on 
is an anti-globalization kind of platform that involves an immigration stance that's coded as hard right and it involves a trade stance that I think we would have traditionally associated as a very left-wing sort of Democrat stance, although you know one could debate how much sense that made. And it reflects a introducing of a different sort of axis of conflict into American politics around a sort of pro and con of U.S. integration into the global economy and to an extent into the global foreign policy framework, right? That so Trump says an idea that I don't know how to code at all, but that like we should make South Korea and Japan pay us for defending them. Which is like it's a little bit of a, of a kind of quote unquote right wing position because it's very it's nationalistic it's sort of hostile to foreigners but it's also kind of a left wing position he's saying like why are we spending all this money on military installations all the way around the world uh, but I think it's really it's like it's not left or right just like to an extent trade stuff doesn't assimilate that well to to a left right class conflict that it's about there's an elite consensus in the United States that the U S should be one of the most immigrant friendly countries in the world. World, that the U.S. should be aggressively trying to broker trade deals, that the U.S. should be happy to place large, expensive military bases in any country that wants to have them, right? When we were talking about bases in Iraq, it was like the Bush administration was like, hey, let us spend billions of dollars having military bases in your country. And it was like, could we convince the Iraqis to, to let us do that? And Trump is saying like, no to all of that in a way that, that nobody has really put on the table in, in American politics and suggest that you could have a return to a more two-dimensional issue space where you have some politicians who want to redistribute income one way, some who want to redistribute income the other way, but then also politicians who are more, you know, yay or nay on this kind of globalism and, and cosmopolitanism spectrum and that, you know, they might not always sort out in the same kind of way. And I think it's not that like Trump is not – for all that he's done well – he was written off for good reasons, right? Like he's not someone who's all that serious about the practice of politics. And you feel like if for some reason some gaffe destroyed his campaign tomorrow, he'd just kind of come up with something else to do with his life. Uh, but there are tons of people, right, in state legislatures and attorneys general and all kinds of people around the country who like are super serious about their careers in politics and a little bit cynical about it. And they're going to be looking at this and saying, you know, there's more possibilities than I had recognized. So one of the things I think happening here is confusion or like mixing up the terms we use to talk about the things we don't like in politics. So I think one of the and I think it's kind of extremism and polarization are two things that get grouped together a lot. And I think it's pretty fair to say that on a lot of issues, Trump is relatively extreme in terms of when he proposed banning all Muslims from entering the country or just a number of his stances like fall on a very extreme end. I guess Planned Parenthood would be an exception to that rule. And I think a lot of times we kind of conflate extremism with polarization. We look at Republicans saying they want to repeal Obamacare. And Obamacare is this issue splitting the parties. And Republicans have this very specific you know, stance, not on just tweaking it a little bit or getting rid of the parts they don't like, but really getting rid of it. And I think one of the things happening with Trump that both of you are picking up on is that you know there still is this extremity in a way that doesn't dovetail with the polarization that we've had so far. There's extremism, like you mentioned, kind of the so-called moderate who wants to make all marijuana legal and ban all immigration. Those are both extreme views that you can hold without being, you know, in the typical Republican-Democrat polarization. So I kind of agree with Matt 
that is not necessarily polarization we're seeing, but it's extremism. And those might be in the mind of voters kind of two things they think of in in tandem that they really don't like about what they see in Washington. I, I just I just I just think this goes in both directions simultaneously. And as such, like you have to make a call on what you think is going to happen inside the political system with it. Because there's one version of this, as Matt says, where you're an ambitious attorney general in Oklahoma and you look at the Trump phenomenon and you say that what I'm going to do is I'm going to run for attorney general, I'm going to run for governor, and I'm going to really criticize free trade agreements. Or there's a version of that where you look at the Trump phenomenon and you say, I'm going to run super hard to the right on border walls on immigration, on the criminal tendencies of immigrants, on what Muslims who are coming into my state are doing. And I think that if you're a Republican, given what most Republicans believe, given what your donor base actually is, you're going to do that one. I don't think you're going to go free trade. And I don't think you're going to probably moderate all that much on taxes and economics because I don't think he actually has moderated that much on it. I mean, I agree. One of the very hard things— I don't think he has, but he's shown that you could— Sure, he has, but but he's also shown you can go the other direction. I, I think one of the things about Trump that's very hard about evaluating him is that he himself is very all over the map. So you can read a lot of different things into Trump. The Planned Parenthood stuff is a great example of, of, of how this works, where he is simultaneously taking an aggressively pro-Planned Parenthood stance and an orthodox anti-Planned Parenthood stance at the same time which is a very unusual thing to do in, in American politics. And he is showing that you can do that, certainly at least if, if you're Donald Trump. One thing I'll be very curious to see, I was talking to a Republican member of Congress the other day, and he was saying that, like, I cannot get away with any of the things Donald Trump gets away with, even though my voters are the same. This is a Southern member of Congress, and he's, they're the same income class. They're, like, the same people supporting Donald Trump. Like, I know that a majority of the people who put me in Congress are supporting Trump right now. But if I did the things he did, they would kill me. And there's something about Trump where, and I think this is like a very a question I have no idea how to answer, where the Republican base is not insisting on ideological orthodoxy from him, that, that he has been able to create a, a situation in which he proves that he's willing to stand up to the establishment by being unwilling to back down ever. And there's something about the connection he's forged there that when he totally goes off the rails on, on something Republicans t- and conservatives typically tend to really believe, they don't punish him for him. It's another kind of example of like, oh, that Donald. Well, that's one way we really know he'll stand up for us. I don't really have a good sense of whether that shows that that is just we were wrong about Republicans had to be conservatives or there is something unique about Trump and the 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 brand he's created for himself and the connection he's created with the electorate that other politicians couldn't pull off if they tried. And I actually think that's going to be a really important question in terms of what kind of legacy he leaves, whether or not he wins the nomination. So uh, our reporter, Andrew Prokop, went to Alabama, went to some Trump events there, and he came away with the, with the take that what people were telling him there was that these gaffes, these controversies, they didn't matter because Trump stood up to political correctness. So I, I asked a, a friend of mine who works in Alabama politics on, on the Democratic side, you know, what, what he thought of this piece. And he said, like, 
less politely, <laughs> that what happened is that there's a lot of racists in Alabama, and they've been waiting for decades for a super racist candidate who does not apologize for being a racist <laughs> to come into politics, and they are really, really excited about it, and that they just it's just really important to them that it used to be that super racist politicians won elections in Alabama all the time, and then they all just stopped, right? <laughs> I mean, they didn't lose. And, and I thought that was an important point, right? There was no moment in Deep South politics when the white supremacist elected officials were defeated by, like, new anti-racist progressives. Like, oftentimes what happened, like, James Eastland, uh, a number of the uh, other Democrats down there, Robert Byrd is, is another good example. The politicians themselves were just like, oh, I'm not a racist anymore. And that was generally accepted as kind of pragmatic politics of the time. Or old-timey Democrats were beaten by new conservative Republicans who were aligned with the conservative views of a conservative part of the country on, like, a whole broad spectrum of issues, uh, but were not, like, running around with Confederate flags necessarily in the way that 1950s uh, Southern politicians were. And Trump, to an extent, at least in that part of the country, I think has— you know, he's proven that he's not willing to back down in like a very specific way. And I think there's been a lot of winking and nodding at that in the media. Like there was this the great New York Times article about the geography of Trump supporters and how it um, lines up very, very, very well with which congressional districts have lots of people who are Googling for um, racial slurs and racist jokes. And the headline was like, the typical Trump supporter is a certain kind of Democrat, dot, dot, dot. And it like, the article wouldn't say what kind, kind of Democrat. Of de- Republican. Yeah. Republican. No, Democrat. Huh. That the, the hardest core Trump demographic is racists with residual Democratic Party affiliation. Right. But they didn't like quite say that. They said that they had this weird phrase, like a certain kind of Democrat. But like, it's the kind of Democrat who's Googling racist stuff. Um, because he's racist. I mean, I understand New York Times data reporters can't read the minds of these people, but like that's clearly what their story is saying. Uh, that's not all there is to Trump. He performs well-ish in some other parts of the country, like Nevada, that don't score as high on that on that index. But I mean, I, most politicians would shy away from some of the stuff Trump has said and done on race because they believe it would get them thrown out of polite society. Um, probably accurately, like regardless of its electoral consequences, right? That uh, Ron Paul uh, kept getting reelected from Texas while publishing these like crazy white supremacist newsletters. But Ron Paul was not like the toast of the town in the way that his son was when, when he came into the Senate, right? Like because people don't want to write glowing magazine cover stories about how guys crank white supremacist newsletters helped him win an election in rural Texas. That's not as good a story as like a physician with libertarian ideas is now a senator, right? Like, And Trump, you've written about this, like Trump is shameless, right? Like Trump doesn't care. But normal people care about many things. Like they would like to win elections, but usually they would like to win elections for some kind of reason, some mix of they would like to work with coworkers and pass laws, and they would like to be um, famous and, you know, well thought of by, by their peers. And Trump has drifted into an odd space in the mental landscape. One thing I, I don't know what he's aiming for here. One thing I just think is interesting and embedded in that is that the nature of politics and political coalitions, and this is something we've talked about a lot in recent years, has just been changing tremendously. We're now in a place as a country where a majority of infants under three are non-white. So we, we are 
very rapidly hurtling towards a place where we're going to be majority minority, right? I'm from California, so that's how it is there already. And not only that, but you're seeing, and, and I think you wrote about this in your piece about Trump and nationalism, Matt, you're seeing a lot more non-white faces on television. You're seeing uh, like Chris Rock go in the Oscars and deliver like a speech about Hollywood racism and how like even Hollywood is full of racists and being a racist is a bad thing and you should stop doing it. And there are these really big fissures in the country. And one thing that has been happening as these fissures have grown and expanded is that, and, and as this kind of change has become more undeniable, is that the parties have actually been trying in this one area to depolarize it. The Republican Party tried to become more pro-immigration. The Republican Party also, and I thought this was an amazingly interesting moment in American politics, it did not fight the same-sex marriage decision that came down from the court. John Boehner did not come out and say, like, this just shows we need to elect more conservative justices and overturn this travesty in the law. I mean, this was like a decade or so after George W. Bush proposed a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. So that had happened very fast. And it's not like everybody in the country had come around on the gay marriage question, but the Republican Party decided very clearly not to fight that battle. And while there was, you know, obviously within the Republican Party, a certain amount of indulgence of a racially tinged birtherism, it has also been the case that the Republican Party was making a big public effort to try to at least say that it wanted to do better among African Americans. Paul Ryan was on his listening tour. Rand Paul was on his listening tour. There were a lot of efforts being made around this set of issues to try to not make them polarized in the way that taxes are polarized, in the way that all Republicans are for no new taxes, whereas Democrats almost universally do believe you need new taxes. And, you know, another way of, I think, thinking about the long term of the Trump coalition is that it is creating a political polarization that fits the country we are as opposed to the country we were, that there, there's a lot of issues in American politics that are polarized at the elite level, but not at the grassroots level. Taxes are a really good example where if you talk to grassroots Republicans, or if you poll them more to the point, you don't get a sharp split. You have a lot of Republicans who are perfectly happy to increase taxes on the rich, but no elite Republicans are willing to do that. Whereas the almost a reverse is true on something like immigration. I mean, there, there is questions about immigration, you know, in polling and depending on how I ask the questions, it, it can change a bit. But it's clear that there is very, very, very powerful anti-immigrant sentiment in the Republican Party, much more powerful than among elite Republicans. And I think that, you know, something you might be seeing is Donald Trump is orienting or trying to orient the Republican Party to polarize a set of issues that are going to be super salient in the coming years and that elites were trying to depolarize because both because of authentically they think immigration is fine, but also they didn't think it was a winning political strategy. But now we're not going to have that. So it may be that like that issue mix changes a little bit and the Republican Party is much more polarized on things like Islamophobia, which George W. Bush had worked really hard to, to tamp down in the country after 9-11. Just generally speaking, sort of what it means for America to become more non-white, more internationalist, more cosmopolitan. And that, I don't think, will be a less virulent kind of polarization, but it would be a different kind. And it would be a shift in which kinds of issues the parties are willing to compromise on and which kinds it is not. I think we should probably uh, take, a, take a look at, at the Democratic side before we, before we wrap up here. 
Warby Parker is a great new concept in eyewear. They've got contemporary eyeglasses that look great, and they're extremely affordable. They're fashion-forward. They give you prescription glasses that start at $95, including lenses. That's standard glasses, reading glasses, sunglasses. Uh, Warby Parker's got all of them. And they make buying glasses online easy, risk-free, and enjoyable. I, it's really great. I, I, I use these myself. And they're way cheaper than other kinds of glasses. And it means you can own more than one pair. And you can sort of take risks with your fashion. You can actually have an up-to-date backup. You can get prescriptions sunglasses, for example. Whether your eyesight's pretty darn good or absolutely abysmal, Warby Parker's going to have you covered with a wide range of prescription options, including digital, freeform, progressive lenses. If you've got a really strong prescription, Warby Parker offers ultra-thin, high-index lenses, so you're never going to look like one of those kids with these Coke bottle glasses. So how does it work? What they have is this thing they call the Free Home Try-On Program. You order five pairs of glasses. They're shipped directly to your house for free. You have five days to test them out. You keep the ones you like, or if you don't like any of them, you don't keep any of them. And if you need more, they send you some more. Visit warbyparker.com weeds to begin your free home try-on experience today. So here's how I see the Democratic primary. It was going along. Bernie was nipping at Hillary's heels but didn't really have a shot. Then Chelsea Clinton said something weird about single payer. Sarah Cliff wrote a strongly worded article about how the Clinton campaign's line on this made no sense. Bernie rocketed up in the polls, tremendous momentum that was then stopped dead in its tracks a couple months later by an Ezra Klein piece about how his uh, management of the, the policy team, it, it wasn't good, right? And then he collapsed. Though. The Vox.com <laughs> primary. <laughs> that, that, that seems... Uh... Probably not right. <laughs> I like to believe that version of well, the Well, the timing lines up. Um, <laughs> to be fair, I want to note, I also wrote a strongly worded piece about how Hillary Clinton's line on this didn't make sense. Well, did so, but Matthews. then I wrote a strongly worded piece about how his sort of rushed out single payer plan also didn't yeah, make sense. Yeah, but that piece was ineffectual. That that did not stop his momentum. <laughs> it was the, so I would say, in fact, what was happening during this time is that the uh, election shifted from a number of small, rural, heavily white states, where Bernie did quite well, to a number of medium-sized southern states full of black people, where Bernie does terribly. I mean, we actually saw on Super Tuesday that to the extent that small, rural, white states were voting, like Vermont and um, Oklahoma, even Minnesota, which is mostly but not 100% rural, you know, he kept doing well, but he got he got creamed in Georgia, Alabama, Virginia. And my sense, you know, talking to people this morning was that Sanders' supporters don't quite get that he's drawing dead at this point because they feel like he won a bunch of states and Hillary won a bunch of states. But if you look at the states, right, like Vermont, like nobody lives in the states that, that Bernie won compared to the, the states that he lost. And the pattern is going to keep replicating itself, right? Like he's looks set to crush in like Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. But you can't, there's no way he's going to win in California without any non-white Democrats. There's not that many white Democrats in America, basically. I, from the Bernie supporters I know and kind of looking at some of the polls, I don't know if all of them had going into this an expectation that like we would come out with the President Sanders. I think there definitely is a group. But then there's this other faction that just really likes where Sanders is pushing the party. They like that we had like a single payer debate, which we wouldn't have if, if Sanders hadn't been a candidate um, you know, through this process. And I think there are some who are realistic about like where this is headed and like thinking through like, yeah, we're probably not going. I think maybe in January, there's like a little bit of like Sanders mania. Right, it was when your article was, came. Yeah, it was That's what I'm saying. exactly when I, when I generated the pro Sanders movement with the single story on Vox.com. 
I mean, I would give like his supporters some credit for some realism about, you know, what his odds were, what the chances are that a socialist had running on the Democratic side of ultimately becoming president. And I think as we kind of like look at what are likely Bernie's waning days in the campaign, there's also, you know, something to be said for, you know, the fact he did influence the debate more than we expected. We had a lot of discussion about free tuition, about socialism. We were explaining socialism to the country that there was a lot of discussion and things that Hillary had to talk about that would not have been part of the campaign Well, and I think Sanders. what's interesting about it is the way he advanced. I, to an extent, he got to talk about his ideas, but he also pushed Hillary to talk about ideas that are not his, but that also aren't, I think, the theme she wanted to run on, right? Like, I think that if you go back 18 months ago and you're, like, in the secret Hillary Clinton lab, it wasn't like, we're going to give speeches saying we need to challenge America to confront the reality of systemic racism, right? Like, that was not, like, her plan. It wound up being a good way to outflank Bernie Sanders, who has a very left-wing but sort of narrow-cast view of American politics, so that Hillary could take sort of left-wing stances like here and there on, on other kinds of things. I will say, for example, he changed my mind about the free college tuition thing. I, I used to agree. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, now I want to need an episode on that. <laughs> I mean, well, tell, tell me how. I used to agree with Hillary Clinton that from a sort of money-targeting viewpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have tax dollars going, as she said, uh, literally, um, to, to pay for Donald Trump's kids' college tuition. And it, it reminded me a little of when I when I uh, met uh, Donald Trump's daughter. When we were, I can see how it would do that. <laughs> we were we were, we were in high school and uh, had a, a mutual friend, and we all, me and and uh, the mutual friend and Ivanka, all went to different like fancy private schools in, in New York. And the reality is that Donald Trump's daughter had the legal right to attend a public high school absolutely for free, as, as did I, as, as did our, our mutual friend Owen. And I think what most of us think about public education is that even though it would have been worse for the New York City Department of Education's like bottom line for all these rich kids to be in the public high schools, like drawing down resources instead of just paying taxes, it would be better for the educational system, right? Like school systems are stronger when the more affluent people in them participate and that it would be really penny wise pound fool to be acting at the margin to, like, push affluent kids out. And so once you accept the premise, which Hillary Clinton does accept, that the federal government and state and local government should be in the business of subsidizing higher education and trying to make it affordable for everyone, trying to make it so that anyone who's poor, middle class can go without crippling debts— that to then introduce the additional complexity of like, well, but Donald Trump's kids are going to have to pay tuition. It creates a lot of extra confusion. It's much harder to explain. It doesn't save that much money. It sort of muddies the waters around the principle, right? Like we don't say, oh, you're too rich to ride the bus at that fair. We're going to have progressive bus fares so that rich people are paying more. We, just, right. we, like have, would be... we have taxes and then we have public services. It'd be very We're... weird if we said only there was an income cutoff for going to K through 12 public school. That would strike people as well, very Right. Or, odd. I mean, look, you could have a sliding – like with Obamacare, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like they subsidize the health care, but they subsidize it less if you don't really need it and blah, blah, blah. And like you see why they structure it that way. But it makes it kind of a drag. 
like. And it's like it's hard to explain to people what's going on. And they don't say, oh, well, we're going to charge admission to Rock Creek Park because really only poor people need the free park. Like if Sarah wants to go for a run, she can pay a dollar. It's like <laughs> if you if you want to have a progressive tax structure, you just have a progressive tax structure and then you provide public services. And anyway, I thought that Bernie did the country a service by stepping a little bit outside the like circle of the higher education wonks. Some of my best friends are higher education wonks. But Bernie really just ignored all of them and everything that they think and was just like, you know what? If we're going to say that it used to be that people didn't go to high school, but we weren't a farming country, so now everyone has to go to high school. Now everyone's going to go to college. Like, we're going to make it free. And like, the next turn in that is to sit down with some higher education wonks and like work out a plan that has uh, more internal logic to it than than Sanders's plan. But I think he he is right to like revisit first principles on this question. So so let me push us away from sort of like writing the Bernie Sanders epitaph, just because I don't think primaries can always change. Like I don't think we so much. I mean, especially need to. this endorsement is gonna <laughs> right. Yeah, but but. One thing that I think has been an interesting theme in commentary that came up in the last couple of weeks pretty strongly, and you saw it you know, sort of on the Sanders side, is this idea that Bernie Sanders is just a much better general election candidate than Hillary Clinton. Mm. And there was like a bunch of different articles that went viral on this point. And I didn't find the articles themselves super convincing. But I do want to try to like raise this question for a minute because I think it's actually an interesting question. One thing about the Sanders-Clinton race is it has been very clean. And Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton have been fighting about ideas like, is it good to have free college tuition or is it good to just have heavily subsidized college tuition on a sliding scale? Or is it good to have single payer health care or is it good to build more on Obamacare and add a public option? Or is it good to, you know, and it's gone sort of like that. And it hasn't been Bernie Sanders running across the country saying, Hillary Clinton is an untrustworthy politician whose views have been purchased by Goldman Sachs. Like he has not made a huge deal, for instance, out of the fact that she will not release her speech transcripts. That was something that came out from moderators at a debate. And it's not been something that he has run just like a million ads on and made it impossible for her to escape scrutiny on that point. But a Republican will. Like Donald Trump will just wander around the country saying over and over and over and over and over again. Goldman Sachs paid her, good friends of mine, Goldman Sachs, like very, very smart business people, but they paid her $675,000 to give three speeches. And what do you think she said? You think she said something that, that she wants to tell us all? But no, she won't release a speech transcript. Well, and the emails thing, right? Even and I was going to so. say, the email thing goes in this, in this direction too. And, you know, and I think the argument a lot of Sanders supporters are making is that Hillary Clinton is on some level like the perfect foil for a Donald Trump, that he is entirely kind of anti-establishment, can't be bought, clearly like is not like a poli- like a normal politician. And she is very thoroughly of the establishment, has taken tremendous amounts of campaign contributions, personal income, and then philanthropic contributions from all kinds of companies with big interests before the, the federal government, that she has a lot of just kind of, as frankly Trump does too, God knows, but Scandals about how she, you know, specifically used public resources and level of transparency and and and, and openness in in those things, and that you know the argument of Sanders supporters is, you know, he doesn't have any of these problems. That that he's hits a lot of the same points as Donald Trump, but he's not a racist and he's not an asshole, and that, that that's a really good combination for this particular election year. And you know, now obviously you can just say, well, if Bernie Sanders were such a good candidate, Bernie Sanders would be winning more. 
uh, primaries. But one argument you can make here is that the folks who Sanders is losing are just going to be terrified of Donald Trump one way or another are going to turn out to vote. The folks he's winning, downscale whites, are some are a group of people who might be more inclined to vote for Donald Trump. And so I'm just curious what, what, what credence you all give to the idea that Sanders is just a stronger general election candidate than, than Clinton is. And I'll just note as a final thing, and again, I don't totally buy this because I think if you spent four months with the entire artillery of the Republican Party pointed at every scandal, everything Bernie Sanders did in the 80s, like his poll numbers would drop a lot, but he does outperform Hillary Clinton in general election hypothetical polling matchups against the various Republican contenders. So uh, two reasons why why I don't buy the Sanders is better general candidate theory. The first is I think, like like you said, you know, he doesn't have the speeches to Goldman Sachs, but he has other types of things that will be polarizing. The first is, you know, that he calls himself a socialist is like a big thing that I think when we talked about negative turnout earlier, I think that could increase the negative turnout against um, against Sanders that, you know, that's something that he's going to deal with that Hillary isn't. That's unique to Sanders. You see, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago on the poll that people just have very negative associations with that word socialism, um, especially among older voters who are more likely to come out to vote. So I think that's one thing, you know, I think Sanders has, you know, some of his ideas as well, the single payer, you know, we know like Americans don't really love government takeovers of healthcare, and that legitimately is a government takeover of healthcare. So I think there's a lot about Sanders that cuts against him in different ways that um, Clinton. The second is, and this one I'm a little less sure on, I don't know how, um, how kind of Democrats react to a Sanders versus Trump race. If they feel, when I think about a Clinton versus Trump race, I think a lot of people look at Clinton and think, well, you know, she'll be fine. Maybe she's not my ideal candidate, but I don't think she'll do anything crazy like Trump would do. I know there's definitely a wing of the Democratic Party that likes everything Sanders talks about and the more left-wing view of government that he has. I don't know if that ends up alienating some people. If they look at Sanders and think, well, I don't think he's a safe bet either because I don't really know about his ideas. And they just end up staying home, sitting out the election. I don't think they end up voting for Trump, but they don't turn out in that way that they might when they see kind of Hillary as like a standard bearer Democrat who's probably not going to do like anything too crazy or wild in office. So those are my two thoughts on the Sanders. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think a Sanders-Trump general election would just be wild in ways that we can't. <laughs> I mean, I would enjoy watching right. it as a journalist. But, I, it, but I mean, like in, in ways that we can't evaluate that like there was all this talk that Michael Bloomberg would get into such a race as right. a third party candidate, but he actually can't. Now, right? Because of the ballot. Yeah, it's it's too late. So it looks like Sanders will lose the primary. But if something really odd happens on March 20th that like sharply turns it around and he winds up winning, it's going to be too late for a third party candidate to get in. But there will be an obvious constituency for for such a third party candidate. Among other things, we've often had zero sort of anti-globalization candidates, which seems like too few. But but two is too many, right? I mean, there's a reason why there's been a bipartisan elite-driven consensus around this. There should be a political movement to re- represent those kind of forces. So I think what you can say predictably about uh, Clinton versus Sanders in a general election is not who would do a better job of winning, but what kind of strategies would they take, right? So if Clinton draws Trump as an opponent, she is going to try to 
lean on the identity politics issues that she used to beat Sanders to motivate black and Latino turnout. And then she is going to try to revive that sort of late Clinton, late 90s, third way type stuff, right? She's going to go around to business leaders of American exporting companies, right? Donald Trump was up there last night talking about how when he builds the wall with Mexico, it's going to be all John Deere tractors because he had said earlier something about these Japanese tractors that are now killing John Deere and Caterpillar because of their currency manipulation, blah, 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 blah. It's good, like, patriotic rhetoric. But when Hillary's going to go to Caterpillar's offices and it's going to be like, I, I understand that Trump just like said this thing that's nice about your company, but actually his trade policies are going to destroy your business. And they're going to be like, yeah, no, that's true. They, they will. <laughs> um, so she's going to be like, well, you should really support me for president. And then they're going to be like, yeah, but we don't really like liberalism on economic issues. We're rich businessmen. And she's going to be like, well, we can, we can shave the edges off of some of that because I'm going to try to win the election, right? And she's going to tell herself, she's going to tell her team, look, it doesn't matter. Republicans are going to control the House anyway. So like, what's the point in me campaigning on like not going to happen left-wing legislation what i need to do is lock down as much support as i can beat donald trump save america from fascism <laughs> consider that a job well done <laughs> get in the history books as the first woman president right and sanders is going to have the exact opposite view of it right he's going to be like the republican party has just gone bonkers for some reason, I became the Democratic nominee. <laughs> so now it's time to run on single-payer health care, free college tuition, like Danish levels of taxation, right? And so uh, to me, Clinton's strategy sounds more likely to work. But you can also understand, I think, in good conscience, right, like a Democrat may say, a, a, a liberal Democrat, that like, look, I want someone who faced with the Trump opportunity is going to try to seize the opportunity to like run and win on a really robust left wing platform, whereas Hillary is going to see the opportunity to tack to the center, get like nice David Brooks editorials written about her, uh, th things like that. Um, and so, you know, your your tastes may vary uh, d depending on how you feel about about these different kinds of things. But but to me, like, it's really hard to say what's going to work because we we don't know what Donald Trump is going to do. I think we've all proven ourselves to be poor prognosticators of the public's reaction to strange things that Donald Trump does. But I think we can understand Hillary and Bernie pretty well, like as yeah. politicians. They're both, I, well, you had a little riff about this, but like Hillary has been coded as the candidate of experience here. But Sanders has been in Congress for 25 years and, you know, was a mayor for what, 10 years before that? Like, they've both been around forever. And they're in their way, both extremely consistent sort of Oh, political definitely. figures. The, the one thing I would add to, to the story you draw there is that Hillary Clinton will try to destroy Donald Trump in a way that Bernie Sanders has never run that kind of campaign, does not have any infrastructure to do that kind of thing. But the, the Clinton machine is the single most skilled opposition research operation that I think exists in American politics today, right? That, that the Democratic Party's sort of Oppo research in waiting kinds of independent organizations like Media Matters are just run by Clinton allies that David Brock is already sort of now running like the Clinton Oppo project. And the thing I think that they will do that Sanders would try to do but would not really know how to set up is just they will be in every courthouse Donald Trump has ever set foot in or any lawyer Donald Trump has ever set foot in. They will find everyone who has ever been fired from a job 
by Donald Trump. They will find every unauthorized immigrant Donald Trump has ever employed. They will look at every scandal where Donald Trump like built the hotel in whatever foreign country and you know did did the very things he's coming out against. And I mean, and they will blanket the airwaves with opposition research, Although, which is like what Republicans yeah. wish Republicans had done. But is you know I think that I think that Bernie Sanders believes possibly you know who knows maybe correctly that the Bernie Sanders vision of American politics is inspiring and that the way he would win the presidency would be to persuade people of that. I think that Hillary Clinton's campaign would believe that like they will make Donald Trump wish he had never been born. But just to play devil's advocate on that. I'm not sure it would work. I'm just saying that's what they'll do. So do you think in the scenario where we have a Sanders nominee, do you think that, you know, oppo machine, because they're so terrified of a Trump, can can it become effective under Sanders? They will move to Sanders. Like, there's no doubt that the artillery of the Democratic Party will, like, like move and point at Donald Trump, right? The super PACs, like, it will all be part of that. But something I've grown really respectful of is that campaigns can't actually outflank their own candidates very effectively. And I think this is something you see sort of over and over and over again. What the, the nature of sort of a campaign really ends up relying on the nature of the candidate in order to create sort of focusing mechanisms in order to make sure that messages are reiterated. Bernie Sanders, his entire career, he has not run negative campaigns. Like that is a big thing for him. Now, I do believe that Sanders would see just like telling the truth about Donald Trump as not a negative campaign, and he will bring the stuff up and he will talk about it. But it is not what he is good at doing and is not the kind of campaign he is good at running and is not where his mind naturally goes and is not where his staffers naturally come from. Point is not that he is not going to use some of this stuff against Donald Trump. But I think you see this with Donald Trump versus like Marco Rubio, for instance, right? There's a real difference between candidates who are skilled at just attacking, 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 and candidates who are told that they need to start doing some goddamn attacking already. And it really matters in how effective that kind of thing is. By the same token, by the way, I think Sanders is really good at running an on-message inspirational candidacy in a way Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that she has very good speechwriters and staff who ran Barack Obama's candidacy, which he was really good at doing that, she has not been able to just like run a candidacy like Barack Obama did in 2008. I, I think that candidate quality in terms of how campaigns end up looking is always ends up being a bigger factor than than, than people realize it is so much of what gets covered is what they say that you kind of can't fill in the gaps that effectively here's what I will say though I, I think in terms of like a potential I think a likely Clinton Trump just sort of like slugfest right Democrats are going to wish that their nominee was not Bernie Sanders but also not Hillary Clinton they're going to wish it was someone Barack Obama. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but not just Barack Obama. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, everyone can have like their, their sort of their dream candidate, but they're going to wish it was more of a cipher, right? Somebody more like a a Democratic version of a Marco Rubio, yeah. or you know, or a a, a, a Kristen Gillibrand, right? Just someone who hasn't been around that long, who hasn't been involved in that much stuff. And who is just very sort of generically like a Democrat. Smartin, Schmo, Schmally. <laughs> but even he has been around for a long time. You know, it just it's the quantity, the back and forth, right? So like with Trump, right, it's going to be like, hey, Hillary, if you hate me so much, I'm so terrible. Like, why were you at my, my wedding? And then she's going to be like, well, because you bribed me with campaign contributions. <laughs> That's what she – and then just go, wait, who's attacking whom, <laughs> right? Like it's very murky. It's very complicated. And what you want to run against Donald Trump is just like somebody – 
who's like, I don't know, in the Senate and like was never involved in anything anyone ever heard about or cared about, <laughs> right? And can just focus on like a negative message against Trump plus a couple like banal policy ideas. Like I'm going to get in and do something that vaguely sounds like a, like a good idea. Whereas Hillary, it's going to be emails and this and that it's it's going to be like a huge huge mess and sanders sanders's people sort of make that point but they have been in in a little bit of denial where because bernie sanders has a positive image among democrats and because hillary clinton has always been ahead of him in national polls the clinton campaign has never done really tough hits on sanders because they think it would cause blowback that they could survive but that they don't need it's just like a hassle that they don't need. So we have not heard a really disparaging characterization of his sort of pro-Soviet foreign policy activism in the, in the 70s and 80s. We've seen him be a little like deer in the headlightsy on foreign policy issues, which I think superficially you would say is because Bernie Sanders like doesn't care about this stuff. But when he was mayor of Burlington, he was actually deeply involved in, in sort of anti-anti-communist activity. And he first got into politics running a, some kind of like far left anti-Vietnam war uh, t- type thing. And that's like in the real world of political campaigning, like you're going to hear a lot about that kind of stuff. Um, not that it's necessarily so terrible, but nobody stays in politics the way both Sanders and Clinton have for 30, 40 years. And definitely not radical politics yeah. the way Sanders did for a certain period of that. Well, it's honestly, it's you have two choices, right? So it's Bernie, you can be involved in radical politics where you have a lot of integrity, but you get yourself mixed up with shady individuals who, you know, look bad decades later. Or you can be like, Hillary, you're very involved in mainstream politics for a million years. But what that means happening is that, like, you were just enmeshed in a million high-profile political controversies over the course of your career. Just from a a total cynical electioneering perspective, Democrats would be way better off with somebody younger, somebody less experienced, someone who's more of a blank slate who could just say, oh, it's 2016, here I am. (laughs) Yeah, although, but even, like, Obama did fit that mold. And, like, you can always find someone, like, if you've been involved in politics for, like, some amount of time, you can find some sort of controversy to lash on to. Yeah, Bill so, Ayers. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and else? this is from someone who, what, had been a senator how many years when he was? A senator? Like, six months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who'd been involved in politics for a very short amount of yeah. time. And, like, of course, you can, like, dig up a controversy, which. Which is why the kind of whole, well, Sanders would just have, like, less for them to latch on to. It's just, like, he's also just been less researched. He's never been the front runner. He's never been—he hasn't run for president before already. Who's, who's think- like, the least qualified plausible? <laughs> <laughs> it is a fascinating thing just about how small the Democratic field was. I mean, there just weren't many kind of players from—there there usually would be more of just kind of, like, ambitious politicians trying to set up future runs or future cabinet possibilities. But it's essentially the answer you're looking for, I think, here is Elizabeth Warren. Yes. no, She could have unified the same segment of the party that Sanders did. She could have done a lot of the sort of historic first woman presidency stuff Hillary Clinton is able to do. She could, but she also just has not been in politics for very long at all. She was elected in 2012, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and it's she was and she was involved years. in politics for two or three years before that. But right, she but, was, uh, but she involved was a, in politics like from the perspective of cracking down on banks. Right, mm-hmm. right. And before that, she was a law professor. I, I really wonder how Elizabeth Warren feels about her decision to not run this cycle. I, I think hope she feels very poorly about it. <laughs> she should I come on the Ezra Klein show. I think it is very it. clear that if she had run, she would have won. 
Uh, yes. Except I, I will say what I've always been told about her is that she does not enjoy campaign. No, I think it might. I that mean, she it may was, be that like that uh, she was very. But people hesitant say it was a true decision. Right? To, to, but but I mean, people say that she was very hesitant to get into that Massachusetts Senate race because she didn't really want to traipse around Western Massachusetts towns, shaking hands and trying to motivate people to come out to the polls. But that like she did it, but like she ran the campaign. She didn't really enjoy it, and she's really excited about the idea that that's a safe seat, and like she doesn't really have to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that like. Yes, on paper, clearly she would have won, and clearly she would have been a good choice. Uh, but also, Scott Walker is a great candidate on paper, right? right? <laughs> it would be really hard, I think, to campaign effectively in Iowa, New Hampshire, states like this, unless you were some kind of borderline sociopath <laughs> who enjoyed doing it. So that's my like my one sort of doubt there. Uh, whereas Martin O'Malley, clearly, clearly, <laughs> just purely in it for the love of the game, <laughs> would have been a, a strong choice. Boom. Boom. Good weeds, y'all. Happy Super Tuesday. Yes. Thanks for listening. Exhausted Wednesday. Another fabulous episode of The Weeds, Fox Policy Podcast from Panoply Network. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez. And to our sponsors. Yeah, and and to them. Also, and thank you to you, our our listeners, who are with us through this crazy ride we're on and are hopefully rating us on iTunes and sharing our podcast with your friends. If there's things you want to talk about, you can email, or you want us to talk about, or you want to talk about, you can email us at weeds at vox.com. Yes, and if you are not getting enough of my dulcet tones, you should listen to my interview podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. The latest episode is with Theta Scotchpole, who's sort of a legendary political scientist. And we talk about how political scientists look at the world, how they learn about politics, what makes them different from just pundits. Um, what are the sort of fissures in political science and how you should think about things like, frankly, Donald Trump. And she's actually done a lot of really interesting research on money and politics more recently and about how the Koch brothers are building something that almost looks like a shadow political party. So so you should, if you, if you are interested in wheezy ways of looking at politics, you should really listen to it. It's not just sort of about what she thinks, but about how you as a political junkie can sort of think more like a political scientist. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>